Please turn with me in your Bibles to page 814 in the Black Bibles or Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 18, in whatever Bible and whatever page number that is for you. Living in a diverse, multicultural community like the suburbs of Chicago, many of you, I'm uh, assuming, have experienced cultural differences with your friends, your neighbors, co-workers, about how people that come from different backgrounds do things differently. If you've not, then my guess is you stay home too much, you know? I recently had the privilege of going to Southeast Asia, and anytime you cross your comfortable land of what you're used to and enter into somebody else's culture, this becomes all the more apparent. It becomes one of the big parts of your trip and your time there is asking questions. Why do they do it like this or this or this? And then you hear from the locals or the people that have been living there for a little while, oh, it's because of this. So for example, uh, I was talking with Alec yesterday about this uh, in Southeast Asia where we were. If you point with your finger, like pointing around at someone and this is offensive. Don't do it in Southeast Asia. It's seen as being like angry at someone. Instead, they point with their thumb. And so I remember a guy introducing me and said, hey, this is Phil, this is Ryan, and this is so-and-so. And he was pointing with his thumb. And I, I was just, that looked weird, you know. It just caught me off guard when he was doing it. When they give handshakes, after they give the handshake, they put their hand on their chest and their heart. And it's a sign of peace. So, nice little handshake, little sign of peace like that. Uh, they drive on the wrong side of the road, right? They drive on the left side, and we here drive on the right side. They wear different clothes. They eat different foods. I was telling our children that for breakfast, they have rice and anchovies as their favorite rice uh, breakfast food, and it was called nasi lemak, and we had some, and it was not our favorite, um, but it was good to try, and so on and so forth. Hopefully you understand what I'm saying about when you go into a different culture, but if there was one thing I would say that really just I couldn't, I couldn't get over, like I understood some of these other cultural things, but every time we were driving, now driving was crazy in and of itself. If you've been in a country like that, you'll know that we, we drive orderly in the lines and that people get all upset if you cut them off or whatever. I mean, there is just no rules in Indonesia where we were. Um, there was more so in the other country. But when we were there, it was crazy. And I kind of expected that, but there was a lot of motorcyclists, you know, going around on their bikes. And a lot of them wore jackets backwards. And I just couldn't get over it. I feel like every time I saw it, I just was like, okay, now why, I, why are they doing this? So just for the sake of context, it's hot in Southeast Asia. You're, you're closer to the equator. There's no such thing as snowy days that you were experiencing. And so riding around on a motorcycle and feeling the breeze like, would feel good in my mind. So why would you put a jacket on? And then why would you wear it backwards? And we then learned right away, and still took a while to register, but it was because many of them thought that the wind had the evil spirits in it, and so the jacket protected the evil spirits from going into their hearts. And they had a name for it. I can't remember the exact name in their um, language, what it was. But to help you understand how real this perception is, not only do they wear these jackets backwards to protect them from the wind spirit, but one of our, our friends that we were visiting, one of their partners in ministry there, they got really sick with dengue fever, I think it was, and went to a doctor, and the doctor says, no, you just have an evil spirit in you. And he was persisting and demanding this friend who's sick, like, no, I don't have just an evil spirit in me. I know what I have. I need some medicine. I need this care. And the doctor kept fighting back and forth with him, like, no, you just have that spirit. And eventually the doctor gave in and gave him the medicine that he needed, and he demanded that he see things his way. 
And that's when I started thinking for a moment. Are there times when cultural differences, we should not demand our own way, and it's quite offensive to just go around and point with your finger You should just point with your thumb, right? Like, it's not a big deal. It's not a right or wrong thing. You should drive on that side of the road. Even though it's crazy, and if you were to drive on the other side of the road, I don't know if you'd get too much in terms of people honking, maybe a little bit, but it almost feels like people aren't driving on the same side of the road already. But at some point, there becomes a a moment where you need to say, no, this is wrong, and I'm going to demand that you see it my way. And I think that there's a few ways I want to apply that throughout today's message. One way is I think too often we read the Bible culturally arrogant, culturally insensitive, and we demand that the Bible be read in Western American lenses instead of reading it in Jewish, Middle Eastern, first century lenses. And that's one way when we read the Bible, or even worse, where we interact with God and we demand that God work on our schedules, our timetables, in our ways. And it's almost like, who, who do you think you are? I mean, imagine me going there and being like, I want McDonald's. That's all I want. I'm American, and you should speak in English all the time and give me McDonald's. Now, I don't personally like McDonald's, but hopefully you get the point of just demanding some sort of American food and speaking my language, doing things my way. I think too often we read the Bible this way and we act about God or treat God this way. And I want to remind you from the outset, Isaiah 55 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So with these things in mind, I'm going to apply back to this throughout the message. Let's read this text, and let's hope that we don't have a 21st century, modern, American blinders on, that we don't approach it the way that we should. So let's start with verse 18 of chapter 9. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been Put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. I think if we were to read this the way it should be read in the first century Jewish context, we would probably have three questions that would pop out of the page. And they may not be the questions you have, And they may be part of that is because of the cultural and time difference. So here's question number one. I think people would be reading this story in this section of these three 
stories and four healings as, Jesus, what are you doing in that manner? They would ask potentially in that way, what are you doing? Jesus is a Jew. Jesus is around Jewish people. It says in verse 18 that he was with a ruler, and Mark and Luke say that he was a synagogue ruler named Jairus. So we know that Jesus is around Jewish people. The whole context is Jewish. And so in that sense, we need to understand that the leader here, the ruler, and the whole story is wrapped up around certain expectations in the Jewish scriptures. So, notice that he says to Jesus in verse 18, my daughter has just died. And then Jesus hears this, and he rose and followed him. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that somebody just died, I don't immediately think, hey, let's go get somebody to heal them and make them rise to new life again. So, Jesus, we all good? Okay. Uh, Jesus does, though. And that's maybe on the surface level what's going on here in terms of, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, do you have the expectation that if somebody dies, that we should go and get a healer and pray and have them come back to life? But when Jesus hears about this, he gets up and he starts going. And, and even though for many of you, you're like, yeah, so what? I mean, that's my point. You've either been around the stories too often. Read this like you're hearing it for the first time. Jesus got up and said, okay, I'll help him out. I mean, what's he going to do? The person's dead. Then there's a next story where Jesus is touched by a bleeding woman. And so I think there's also this tension as the story's going on. He's like, oh, wow, what's Jesus going to do? He got up and he followed this man. He thinks he's going to help this person that's hurt and, and, and dead and dying. And behold, it says, interrupting the story, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched him. If you're a first century Jewish person and a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years touches you or gets near you, your response should be what? Get away from me. Back up. Whoa. You're unclean. Stay away. But that's not what Jesus does. He stops, he pauses, and he interacts with this woman, and it's almost like, hey, wait, wasn't there another story going on here? Wasn't he on the way to something? But he stops for this, for this person in this situation. Hopefully you start to see it. Jesus, what, what are you doing? Luke chapter 15 says this, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of that impurity, all the days of that discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in like the days of her impurity, she will be unclean during those days. Every bed that she lies on, she, everything she sits on will be unclean, and all the uncleanness similar to her menstrual impurity, whoever touches these things, they will be unclean. They'll have to wash their clothes and bathe themselves in water and be unclean until evening. But if she then is cleansed of the discharge, she shall count for herself seven days from that day, and then she will be clean. Welcome to Embassy Church. If you're a visitor here during the holidays, Merry Christmas, where we like to read Leviticus chapter 15 and give you nice Bible verses for you to meditate on this season. Certainly, as you read Leviticus 15, as you think about this concept of menstrual impurity and discharges of blood, isn't there a sense of like, oh, that's weird? That's a cultural difference. There's something where I'm not quite connecting here or I'm not understanding. And that's part of what I mean, that when we read some of these stories, you need to put yourself in these shoes, see it from their perspective, understand that, yes, that's weird to you, but it's not weird to them. And there's many, many times where I think you understand the need for clean and unclean or hygiene, different things going on that we do throughout our worlds today. It's just different stuff. We're in a modern world and in a different country. 
So hopefully you can at least understand it from that perspective. But if we're in their shoes, this woman cannot be around people. In Leviticus 14, an unclean person goes around and says, unclean, unclean. And they're never around to be, they're never supposed to be around other people who are clean. She's not allowed to attend worship in the synagogue. She can't be touched by anyone. If her blood gets on something and somebody touches that blood, now that person's unclean. And it says in Leviticus 15 that if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, well, what about our woman in this text? It's not just many days, it's many years. She has been unclean like this for 12 years. She would have been well known to be unclean in the community around her. And Jesus is on to help a dead girl. And he stops. He talks with this unclean woman. We can understand, hopefully, from the woman's perspective, knowing that she's had this problem for 12 years, why she is so desperate for help. If you read Matthew uh, and compare Matthew to Mark and Luke in this same story, you'll notice that they'll give the details that she spent all that she had on every doctor that she could possibly find and found no help for her disease. She's broke. She's poor. She's socially outcast. She's got no possible way to get back into society, back into the Jewish community of worship. The membership of being an Israelite was not something that she had the privilege of. Put yourself in her shoes. Realize the desperate situation she finds herself in. And notice that Jesus gives her the time of day. He talks to her. He doesn't rebuke her. He gives tender words. He says to her, take heart, daughter. It's very affectionate, very personal. Some people may not understand on your first read, again, not having the Jewish culture in mind, that she wanted to just touch the fringe of his garment, the tassels that he would have worn. 613 of them would have been worn by Jewish teachers and rabbis, most Assuredly, Jesus would have had these tassels on. Why did she want to just touch them? Well, Malachi chapter 4 in verse 2 says, The day is coming, says the Lord, for you who fear my name, when the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. And it's the word for edge of the garment or tassel. For hundreds of years after Malachi... Jewish people were waiting for the day when the Son of Righteousness, when the Messiah would come and the edge of His garment would have the power to heal, healing in His wings. This is documented in first century literature, so it would have been very appropriate, if you understand what's going on in their day, for her to think this way. This isn't a weird part of the story if you're in the first century. It might be weird to us, like, why touch the fringe of the garment? During the days of Jesus, this was a prophetic connection to the Messiah, the son of David. So hopefully you can understand a little bit better why a Jewish person like this woman would have read or heard about the story of Jesus healing other people. Or maybe he even heard that the way that Jesus was going right now was on the way to heal a girl. And that's what he was up to. And so maybe this was her last and only shot to be healed and restored into society. We're not really, I think, supposed to understand, though, why Jesus is stopping to talk with her and spend time with her and get close to him. The question should be, what are you doing, Jesus? If Jesus touches her, associates with her, he's going to become unclean. But Jesus knew something that the people around him didn't know. Jesus knew that his purity is more contagious than her impurity. His holiness is greater than any uncleanliness. If this point isn't made clear with this story with the woman that's bleeding, if it's not made clear in chapter 8 when Jesus touched the leper, remember that story in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 that we just talked about a few weeks ago? In the very next scene, Jesus goes to that little girl who was dead. You know she's dead because they've already hired the official mourners, the people who cry and wail and weep. 
I had a close mentor of mine pass away on Thursday. I'm going to a funeral tomorrow. My expectation is that it's going to be somber and quiet. Culturally speaking, we're not accustomed to people using loud displays of emotion for really, you know, many occasions. We're reserved often in this end of the world. In the first century, you paid people. There was a professional occupation to pay people that when somebody died, they'd come to your home and they would just sob and weep loudly. The Jewish rule book, the Mishnah, it tells us that even the poorest of the poor had to at least hire two people. We know this guy's a Jewish synagogue leader or ruler, so it says that there's chaos, there's a loud commotion, there's a ruckus going on over here at this house. This girl is dead. Jesus goes into the home, sends everybody out, and he touches her. What are you doing, Jesus? Remember, if I'm a first century Jew, I'm thinking, you're going to become unclean. In the same way that the woman who's bleeding for 12 years makes you unclean, a dead person would make you unclean. Hopefully you would understand that as well, right? Is that too hard to think about? Touching and being around dead bodies, even for hygiene purposes, is not a good idea. Over the course of time, they'll decay and rot and lead to all kinds of sickness, if not your own death. So it makes sense why they'd have rules and regulations, religiously speaking and even physically for the sake of health. But when we go to battle against death, it's contagious and we lose. Jesus knew something that they didn't know. When he goes to battle against death, when he touches death, he wins. Jesus is revealing his power and authority over all of creation, even death itself, over all kind of social impurities, religious impurities. And you should be strengthened and encouraged that Jesus, the one we worship, our Lord, our King, he has power and authority over all. It is infinite. It cannot be measured. It cannot be reined in. It can't be defined. It never fits into our little boxes of who we think God is. Do you know that God rules and reigns over every sickness and disease? Do you believe that Jesus, the one you pray to, the one you sing to, the one we've gathered to worship, he has power and authority over every cough and cold, headache and fever, every type of cancer or terminal illness, every cut, nick, or bruise, whatever internal bleeding you might have, no matter how long it goes on, his power can heal his power will heal, and he has ordained and allowed every chronic pain, injury, sickness, and death. It makes sense, rationally thinking, if he's got the power to heal any of it, then he is allowing right now whatever you're going through. There is no type of suffering that you and I will go through that he could not stop in an instant. He has that power. And praise God, many times he does heal. All he has to do is say a word or give a touch. Were you paying close attention to our Old Testament scripture reading? Did you hear when Carl read for us that Elijah was praying and praying and laid on the body of a dead boy three different times? You notice how Jesus is the greater Elijah. He raises people to, from the dead, but it takes just a word or just a touch. There's not this whole big ceremony. There's not this pleading with the Lord back and forth. He is the Lord. If he determines it's time to wake up from the dead, it's time to get up from the dead. How does it make you feel to know that the God of the Bible, he's sovereign, he rules, he reigns. There is nothing that can defeat him, not even death. I'm sure some of us, if we're going through chronic pain and suffering, this might be hard for us to have ears to hear. I don't want to pretend that I know all the pains and sufferings that you have gone and will go through. But as your pastor, there's one thing I do know. The God who is sovereign over all pain and suffering does not look at suffering from a distance. He knows it. 
he willingly took it on himself. Do you realize that this story points forward to where Matthew's going in his gospel? Do you know that there would be another parent that's going to cry and mourn the loss of their child? But this time, it's not a little girl. It's going to be Jesus, and it's going to be Jesus' mother as she watches him die on a cross. The king of the universe is not just sovereign over pain and suffering. He bore our pain and suffering. There is no other religion. There is no other country or worldview or ideology that preaches a message of a God who knows pain and suffering and is powerful over it. And in fact, because he absorbed all pain and suffering on the cross, enduring our shame and our sin, absorbing the wrath of God, satisfying all the demands that we have sinned against him, and then rising like the little girl that Jesus took the hand, God the Father three days later took Jesus' hand and raised him from the dead and defeated death once and for all. So as we ask the question maybe a different way now, Jesus, what, what are you doing? He's saving the world. One little girl at a time. Isaiah 35, 4 through 6 says, Your God will come with a vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and He will save you. When He comes to save, the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame man will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Isaiah 35 is coming to fruition in the coming. When God comes, He will come. And this is what it will look like. The blind will see. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will run and leap like a deer. The mute will sing for joy. Matthew 8 and 9 has given us a beautiful portrait of Isaiah 35. That Jesus has come. He is the God, Yahweh, of the Old Testament. He's come to save. In fact, look down at your Bibles and look at verse 21 and 22 of our text. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. This word made well is only translated made well here and in the next sentence. Jesus turned, seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Every other time you'll see this word in Matthew's gospel, it's translated the way it's normally translated. Save. Hear it that way. If I only touch his garment, I will be saved. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has saved you. That's literally what they're talking about is salvation. This woman needs saved. She needs saved from her physical infirmity, for sure. She needs saved from her social outcast, most definitely. She needs saved because she is outside of Israel, and she needs to be brought into the membership of the people of God. She needs all of it, and that's the kind of salvation that Jesus brings through his death and his resurrection. Do you need saved? Do you see yourself as desperate, as needing help, as needing saved? These people were. The first question I was thinking about was, Jesus, what are you doing? The second question I was wondering as I read these texts is, Jesus, why are you helping these people? Why these kind of people? And there's one thing that we see for sure, that these people are broken. These people are desperate. They're hurting. Notice that a ruler of the Jewish synagogue, wealthy more than likely, well-respected in the community, all kinds of dignity in society. He does not care about his social dignity. He is desperate. His daughter has died. He is humbled. It says in the text that he knelt before him. Some even use the translation he worshiped because it's the word that's normally used for bowing down in prayer. Either way, regardless of its worship or just kneeling in humble respect or even just think of a guy that's at the end of his rope and he's just like, Jesus, you know, get that image in your mind of falling down on his knees, just desperate and begging, would you please help? I wonder how many times that's the way you think about yourself. Can you read yourself into this story? 
Have you ever felt desperate? Do you need saved like the way this man needs salvation in his family? How about the woman who's exhausted all of her options? Twelve years going to doctor after doctor after doctor, praying and praying and praying, longing and longing for some sort of healing or medicine, spending every dollar that she had. Nothing until Jesus comes along. She's desperate. She broke all of the social rules of the first century for a Jewish person by going up to Jesus and touching him. Notice the story doesn't say she's yelling and shouting, unclean, unclean. That's what she should do, just in case somebody were to bump into her. She's desperate. Why are you helping these people, Jesus? Well, they're humbled. They're broken. They're desperate people. Look again at the next story, Jesus healing the two blind men. It says Jesus passed on from there and two blind men followed him and they're crying continually aloud. They're following him and saying, have mercy on us, son of David. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel that anybody's going to call Jesus the son of David. It's a quick little reference to the anointed one, the Messiah that the Jewish people were longing for. Turn your Bibles back to Matthew 1.1. The very first verse of Matthew's gospel introduces that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The next time you're going to see somebody call Jesus the son of David is in our text, Matthew chapter 9, and it's two blind men. Oh, the irony that these two blind guys get it. They're desperate and they're longing and they know who Jesus is and they're doing whatever they can to get the help that he can provide. And then look at the very end of our text, verse 34 of chapter 9. But the Pharisees see all of this and they say he cast out demons by the prince of demons. And if I were to be a little picky, I'd say, but the Pharisees continued saying it's written in a language of not just once, but it's like this is their mantra. This is their message to everyone else that's in the Jewish community. No, no, no. Jesus is doing this by the power of Satan. That's what they did to explain the success that Jesus was having, which begs the question, I think, so many times do I hear people say something like, well, if I saw a sign, I would then believe. I'm waiting for a sign. Or if I saw a miracle, then I would know. Or I'll really get into the Christian faith once God reveals it to me clearly, like answers this specific prayer that I've been waiting for or asking. What's interesting, though, is that you've got two different people. You've got two blind guys that have not got healing yet, and they already believe Jesus is the son of David. You've got a woman who's not received healing yet, and she's doing everything she can to say, I want to get healing. You've got a synagogue ruler falling on his face. But in contrast, you've got Pharisees, religious leaders of the Jewish community who are saying, yeah, I know he's doing miracles, but it's by the power of Satan. Just seeing miracles does not mean you will have faith in Jesus. Not the right kind of faith. As Christians, I think it's helpful for all of us to know that we do not live every day in our faith to build our faith and grow our faith by praying and seeing miracles. Miracles do happen. I have tried to say that again and again through this series on healings. We should pray for them and long for them. But miracles and supernatural acts of God shouldn't be expected as the norm that happen every week or every day. That's kind of the whole point of a miracle is that it's rare and sometimes we forget that because these stories are smashed together, like it seems like, well, miracles just happen all the time when you're around Jesus or you're following Jesus. There's many times where I'm assuming many days went by and they were just walking around, going from here to here, and you don't see much what happened. Well, they went to sleep, and then they walked another day's journey, and then they went to sleep, and then they walked. I mean, there was a lot of days where there wasn't miracles. But this is getting the highlights of the story. Same thing with the book of Acts. Don't read the book of Acts and be like, well, even after Jesus, the disciples are just doing miracles left and right. There were several miracles happening. But again, there's probably time periods in between several of these stories. 
Our faith should be nurtured by feasting on the Word of God and seeing Jesus Christ. If you're a new Christian, sometimes people come to faith in Jesus early on and you see all kinds of coincidences and you see all kinds of miracles or things. You're like, wow, now I know God's real. That, I believe, is the milk. The food you need to grow up in maturity is God's Word. And you need to see that these people have their faith set on Jesus. These people are being saved in part because of their faith. Look at the text explicitly in the two blind men story. Jesus tells them in verse 29, Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. Their faith is an important element to the saving and the healing of these men. But it is not the element as if we should overdo it. And this is a part where you need the balance. If you never ask and you have no faith, then you probably won't get the healing that you're asking or that you want. If you don't believe, you don't ask, you don't desire for God to heal in certain ways, then my guess is you won't get it. You ask not and you receive not. At the same time, too many people think of these texts saying that based on the measure of your faith, that will be the measure of your healing. And as you look at these series of healings in this section of Matthew's gospel, I would want to say that I don't think seems to be the case at all. We've seen 10 healings in the course of the last several weeks. And when you look through each of these different stories, you see various levels of faith. You see some people that have no faith at all. Look at the man in verse 32. And as they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled. Where was his faith? Doesn't say anything about his faith. And this isn't like in isolation. There's several stories in the Gospels of Jesus healing people, and they didn't say they had faith. Sometimes he just goes up and heals people. I hope that when you read these stories, you don't think, well, the reason I'm not healed yet is because I don't have enough faith. We need to get rid of that lie in our minds and our hearts. We need to repent of that kind of thinking. It does people harm. Spiritual damage. When we talk that way, when we think that way, when we beat ourselves up, something did not go my way. I asked and asked, but Jesus is not giving it to me because I didn't have enough faith. More often than not, if not the majority every time, that kind of thinking is harmful and unhelpful. We need to understand faith more like a conduit. Faith needs to be attached to the source, the fountain. It's like you're sailing. You're not going to go unless you put your sails up. Your faith is putting the sails up. But without any wind, you're not going anywhere. So there's work for us to do. There's an active part that we have. But some of us do that well and some of us do that poorly. And throughout these stories, you see disciples in a boat and Jesus rebukes them and says, oh, you of little faith. And then does he say, and your faith is so bad, I'm not even gonna calm the storm. We're all just gonna die right here in the boat. No, that's not how the story goes. Jesus heals people with little faith, people with no faith, People with lots of faith, the great faith of the centurion soldier who says, hey, I believe you can heal my sick servant just with saying a word. And she's like, wow, that's great faith. That's the best faith I've seen in all of Israel from a Gentile Roman soldier. Yes, we should learn from this that faith is an important part of how we interact with the message and story of Jesus. Yes, we should have faith and be encouraged and challenged. Where's your faith? Friend, regardless of the level or the amount of faith you have, make sure your focus is on the object of your faith and not inward looking at your faith. Oftentimes when I'm trying to illustrate this point, especially because it's colder out, I was reminded of, uh, think of somebody wanting to go ice skating on a pond or a lake. And so right in the front of Judson's dorm room, there's one where they have a little pond area and it sometimes freezes over and I've seen some students out there playing ice hockey on that pond. And the other day, it was starting to freeze over, but it was real thin ice. I was like, yeah, I don't think anybody's going to go out and play ice hockey on there. And as you see, it's getting a little warmer, and the snow's melting. And, but maybe later on in January or February, it'll, it'll get really thick, and the ice will be dense, and then they'll go out and play some hockey. Some people 
could have a lot of faith that the thin ice would hold them up, but if they jump in, they're going down. And then some people, no matter how thick it is, no matter how long it's been negative so and such, such and such degree, they're going to go and they're going to be like this. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I should go out. I'm a little scared. And there's like 10 people already on the ice having a good time jumping around and they're just a little worried. The point is it doesn't matter how much faith you have. You could have a lot of faith, but the wrong object, like thin ice, you're going to fall through. But what if you have a little bit of faith or shaky faith, but then you actually do step out onto that thick ice? It doesn't matter how much faith you have. You're going to be saved. You're going to be held. You're going to stand. So it is with following Jesus. So it is when we're doing missions, when we think about cultural differences. Some people around the world have a lot of faith, but it's in the wrong object. And I think as Christians... We need to help them see that they have thin ice that they're stepping out onto. That this is dangerous. In the same way that our friend over in Southeast Asia was telling the doctor, I'm demanding you see it my way. I think this is one of those instances where we need to demand that just having a lot of faith in the wrong object is not good enough. Having faith in Jesus and Jesus alone is the message that we should proclaim and tell people. Because it's only Jesus who saves he saves men and women. He saves clean and unclean. He saves rich and poor. Adult and children, and may I mention just for a moment, children are not seen as cute and sweet and, oh, yes, oh, little girl, that's so cute. It would have been oftentimes little girls in particular that are left out to just be abandoned and maybe left to die or, or whatever else. I mean, there's, there's not typically in this world and culture a high prizing of a little girl the way you and I might. And praise God that we value that. But just so you know, this is one of those moments like, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you saving her? Why do you hear about a little girl dying? And I'd just be like, oh, who cares? Little girl dying. That's the way everybody else would have been. But you get up and say, yeah, I'll go help. And then you stop that woman that's bleeding. And then these two blind guys. And then someone that's demon-possessed. And over and over again, these are the kind of people that Jesus is healing and it's the Pharisees who don't get it and keep saying, no, he's doing it by the power of Satan. Who's really blind now? I think that's part of what Matthew's doing in these stories. Who's really blind? Who are you more like? So our first question is, what is Jesus doing? Who are you helping, Jesus? Why these people? Lastly, I want you to think about this, especially in light of Christmas and the Advent season. Jesus, when are you going to help me? I want to end with you thinking about your own needs and desires, and I want you to look at this story and remember that in the same way that time can be very relative, culturally speaking, so is God's timing very different, and it would be wrong if not downright sinful and arrogant for you and I to demand that God work on our timetable. So when I'm in Southeast Asia and my brother tells me that we have a dinner appointment with his friend and he's like, oh, but let's squeeze in playing a little basketball together. And then I'm like, hey, shouldn't we go? It's time to, you know, get ready and get washed up and go off to dinner. He's like, well, let's play one more. I'm like, I think we're going to be late. And it's like, there's a whole different concept of what late is and what being on time is. Typically, right, if you're around here, being right on the dot, if service starts at 11 o'clock, you should either be here right at 11 or maybe five minutes before. That's the typical Western mindset in terms of time, right? That if you're five, ten minutes late, maybe 15 minutes late, that's a little offensive. That's rude. Oftentimes, if you're a few minutes late, you might apologize. Hey, sorry, I was running a little late. I got held up here or there. That's here. That's not here. That's not over there. There's some cultures I heard about this week as I was thinking about this concept. In, there's an island in the Pacific, Southeast Asian islands. Uh, four hours is that, is that mark. After four hours, at that point, then you need to say, I'm sorry, I was a little late. I got held up. So, like I said from the beginning, culturally speaking, there's differences into the way that people work in regards to time, diet, traffic. How about in this story? 
Think about Jesus' timing. I think it popped up a couple times. First, Jesus is asked by the man, come, help my daughter, and then he stops and helps the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. 12 years. If any of you are in the medical profession, what would you call what Jesus is doing here? Earlier, he says he's a great physician. Here, you would say, that's malpractice, Jesus. If I'm in the ER room and you've got a chronic diseased person and somebody that's just died and it's time to bring them back to life, like what takes precedent? Adult or child? Child. Chronic disease or I'm dying already. Dying person. It's as if Jesus has all the time in the world. Hey, let's stop. Whoa, this woman needs some help here. That's only making the matters worse. If you read Mark and Luke's account of this story, they don't give you the idea that she died already, but that maybe somewhere along the line when Jesus was on his travel, that's when she died. It underscores this point all the more that there's, there's this interruption in the story. And I think Matthew is communicating that by interrupting this story because there's three sets of three. The only story that has an extra miracle is this story. If you were following along, you've noticed that in chapter 8, there's three sets of miracles, then a discipleship teaching, and then three more miracles, and then a discipleship teaching. And then now there's three more stories, but there's a double miracle in the first story because there's that interruption. So what's Jesus doing? Why is he helping her? When are you going to go and help that little girl? Jesus sends all the people out. He takes his time to go help her. Look at the next story of the the blind men. Jesus passed on from there, and two blind men followed him, crying out loud, have mercy on us, son of David. The languages that they've been doing it, following him for a while. Why didn't he just stop right away and be like, all right, I hear you. I'll help. He keeps letting them follow, and then he says that he entered a house, and then the blind man came, and then he addressed the issue. There's a little bit of a delay in that story as well. So here we are. You're dealing with something. You're longing for something. You're in this Christmas season, and really the Christmas season is a story of waiting in this sense. The people of Israel had to wait hundreds and hundreds of years, 400 to be exact, from the last time God spoke through a prophet. Over 400 years since they last heard from that passage I read from you in Malachi chapter 4, the last prophet to speak to the people of Israel. The son of righteousness will come, and he will bring healing in his wings. Great. Looking forward to it. One generation dies. Another generation dies. 400 years, just silence. We don't do good with silence, do we? Could you imagine being in that awkward conversation where there's silence and it lasts for 400 years? That's what the conversation between God and Israel was like. And God enters into that silence and he starts speaking and shouting in the person of Jesus. But they had to wait. How long have you had to wait for something? I was talking with someone this week and they said, I'm just really struggling with something I've been asking God for. I said, how long have you been waiting? They said, about a month. And I said, have you ever thought about the story of Joseph and how it took him 13 years to finally get things worked out in his life? 13 years before his hopeful prophecy of being a leader and a ruler and people bow down and give him respect and authority, that that did not come to fruition right away. And it went from bad to worse to worse. This woman had to wait 12 years In our impatient society where we're so accustomed to having things now, it is good for us to learn to wait. Are you willing to trust God in this season for whatever you're waiting for? Are any of you waiting to get married? Waiting in singleness? Waiting to have children or family? Waiting for a job change? Waiting for God to heal you. You've been praying for healing because of your chronic illness or sickness or disease.
are you willing to wait or do you want to push and demand that God see things your way? Can't you read these stories and see that Jesus is not somebody that we should want to hurry? That his timing and his ways are always good? And that he is going to wait when he asks the Father, Father, would you take this cup from me? And he got no answer, and it led to his own death. I hope you see that in Jesus there's so many reasons for us in these stories and throughout the Gospels for us to trust Jesus and not try and hurry him along and know that he does want to save, that he will save, and that ultimately if you wait long enough, even if it's after your death, everything will be healed. Everything will be saved. Socially, physically, spiritually, economically, geographically, whatever area you want to possibly think of, the gospel proclaims a message that Jesus has come, that God did not just leave us hanging, and he won't leave you hanging. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your son Jesus. As the writer Paul says in the gospel uh, or in the book of Galatians, at just the right time, you sent forth your son. We thank you now for just that right time, the perfect timing of sending Jesus into the world to rescue sinners, to heal diseases to reconcile God and man, to renew the people of Israel into a whole new Israel that then affects and changes and transforms the whole world. So we want to pray, God, that you would give us humble hearts, not culturally snobbery minds that think that our way needs to be demanded everywhere we go in this world and every time we pray to you. Help us to remember that you're Lord and that you're sovereign. So give us comfort and trust as we wait for whatever it is that we might be waiting for. And help us, God, in our weak faith when many times we're struggling to trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.